Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushville. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prince for the week of April 17, 2022. A big Sound Prince congratulations to Ben and McKinley Wright of Henderson on the birth this past week of their baby girl, Hadassah. Ben is a member of the KCB Board of Directors and is president of our KCB Next Generation chapter. We also extend our deepest condolences to longtime Sound Prince listener Margaret Johnson from Paragould, Arkansas. Her husband, Travis, recently passed away unexpectedly. Travis was a wonderful person. He attended an ACB convention here in Louisville with Margaret, and they both came to a KCB convention several years ago. Rest in peace, Travis. You'll be missed. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind will hold its spring auction on Saturday, May 14, from 2 to 5 p.m. on the KCB Zoom line. Anyone can listen and bid, regardless of where you live, because all you need is a telephone to join the fun. The auction will be filled with food, jewelry, technology, designer bags, and many other exciting items. Proceeds from this auction will help underwrite the cost of our weekly roundabouts. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind once again invites other KCB chapters to participate in the auction. If a chapter donates items to the auction and if individuals donate items in the name of a chapter, that chapter will receive 50% of the amount raised by those items. Deadline for donating items is May 1. For more information about the auction and how to contribute items, contact us at 502-895-4598. In-person low vision support group meetings in Louisville have started again after a two-year break due to COVID-19. The meetings are from 1 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern on the second and fourth Mondays of each month at United Crescent Hill Ministries, 150 South State Street in Louisville. The next meeting is Monday, April 25, and everyone is invited to attend. The Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired will soon be resuming its bowling activities in Owensboro. For more information and to let them know that you would like to participate, contact Cheryl Ott, Savvy President, at 270-686-8689. The South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind in Bowling Green holds its social hour Zoom call every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. Central, 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. The guest speaker for Wednesday, April 20, is a visually impaired life coach from the Lexington area. A speaker has not been announced for the April 27 call, but you can guarantee that there will be much information sharing and lively conversation. To join the call, call 669-900-6833 and use the Zoom code 769-863-4411. The first Saturday in May will soon be here, and that means that it's time for the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Kentucky Derby Party. This year's event will be both in-person and virtual. Doors will open at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville at 10.30 a.m. And there will be lots of food and games and friends all day long. In-person attendees need to make return rides between 8 and 8.30 p.m. that evening. 
The Zoom line will welcome everyone who cannot come in person, whether you live in Kentucky or California or Florida or Alaska or any other point in between. Watch for details coming soon. The following events are all on the KCB Zoom line at 669-900-6833. Use the code 862-9889-6972. The Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision Support Group will meet on Wednesday, April 20 at 8 p.m. We'll be sharing tips on how to use the iOS message app, and your questions and comments about living with low vision are always welcome. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you to share good books at Page Turners at Roundabout on Saturday, April 23, from 2 to 4 p.m. There will also be a Roundabout on Zoom on Saturday, April 30, from 2 to 4. Plan to be there. Discover all the great products for your dog from K.N. Roush and Guide Light Dog Products at the Guide Dog Users of Kentuckyana meeting on Monday, April 27. The call is on the KCV Zoom line and the time is 7 p.m. Eastern. There are many ways to listen to sound prints. ACB Media One, available at www.acbmedia.org, or on the phone at 518-906-1820. Here's the broadcast schedule. All times are Eastern. Sundays, 8 p.m. Mondays, 8 a.m. Tuesdays, 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. Wednesdays, 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. Thursday, 10 p.m. And Friday, 1 a.m., 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Enable the... ACB Media Skill on any Amazon Alexa device, and then just say, Alexa, open ACB Media. Alexa will ask what channel you want to listen to on ACB Media, and you just say, Media One. You'll be connected to the correct stream. For more information, call the Kentucky Council of the Blind at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. At its April 13 social hour, the South Central Kentucky Council of the Blind in Bowling Green had an outstanding speaker from Elder Law in Kentucky. The topic was wills, trusts, and protecting assets as we age. While we know that laws in various states differ, there are many common principles. Teresa Eskew, Vice President of SCKCB, opens page two as we bring you their excellent presentation on wills and trusts. We hope that you find it useful. And thanks for listening to Soundprints. Page two. It's just now two o'clock. Teresa, do you want to... We're fortunate today to have a speaker from, she has an office in Louisville and Bowling Green, which are Brad area surrounds Warren County, which encompasses Bowling Green. And she's going to talk to us about a lot of different stuff. And I think she's going to have a lot of good information. And you decide how you want to handle the questions. If you want to talk a bit and then ask for questions, you can. Or if you want to do your spill and have everybody save their questions to the end, you can do that as well. If everybody could mute in case you have background noise, that would be great. And then at the end, we'll we'll let Mickey or Jewel handle the, the question and answer section. 
Okay. Well, my name is Shelly Dowell. As Teresa said, I'm an attorney. I'm based out of Louisville, but we have a Bowling Green office, and we recently just opened a uh, Bullitt County office in Shepherdsville. Um, I've prepared a 30-minute presentation. Um, I usually talk longer than my presentation time, um, but I'm going to try and keep it 30 minutes, and then that way, if there are questions, I think it's easiest at the end, um, and I can take questions either um, you can just unmute yourself and ask, or if you want to put it in the chat, um, I'm happy to answer questions either way. Um, but what I'm going to talk about today are basic foundation legal documents that every person over 18 should have, as well as um, a little bit about Medicaid for long-term care, because there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about that. And then also about a veteran's benefit, um, in case we have any veterans or widows of veterans on today, or even people who know veterans or widows of veterans. There's a very specific benefit available to those uh, wartime veterans that a lot of people don't know about. So I'll just jump into the very beginning, which is the whatever legal document everyone over 18 should have. There's four of those, the power of attorney, the health care surrogate, the last will and testament, and the living will. The power of attorney is that document where you put in writing who the person you choose to handle your financial and legal affairs. The um, health care surrogate is where you put in writing who that person you choose to be. Make medical decisions for you if you cannot communicate. The living will is that document where if you are at the end of your life, you let the healthcare providers in this document know what your wishes are regarding end-of-life care. And then, of course, the last will and testament, which most people know about, is where you say, here's who gets my stuff when I'm gone, and here's who I say is the person who's responsible for opening up that court case so that I can get my stuff when I'm gone, give away my stuff when I'm gone. Um, power of attorney. So we'll deal with that one first. It is, in my opinion, the most important of those documents that I just went over. That's because it affects you while you're alive, not when you pass away. The will deals with when you pass away. The power of attorney is so important because without it, if you are unable to act for yourself because you are incapacitated, um, usually mentally, uh, so with cognitive decline, um, then the only option is guardianship, which is never any good for anyone. So the power of attorney, as I said, is a written document where you, so you are the uh, principal, name a person to manage your financial and legal issues. And the person can only do what the document says. So I'm famous for telling my clients, um, that the document, the words in the document actually mean something. They're not just there to look pretty because your power of attorney can only do what that document says they can do. There's two types of powers of attorney. There's a durable, which means that it stays in effect if you become incompetent. It goes into, um, and there's an, it's immediate. So it goes into effect immediately and it ends with your revocation or passing. 
There's a springing power of attorney that means that it goes into effect for the terms of the document. So that, that durable power of attorney is an immediate power of attorney and it goes into effect as soon as you sign it. The springing power of attorney only goes into effect if a physician says that you are unable to act for yourself and it ends with your revocation or passing. So uh, we wouldn't name a person as our power of attorney if we don't trust them. So the springing power of attorney does add a hoop for someone to have to jump through. If you are naming someone that you trust, but you're not quite sure if you trust them, or you're just not ready to um, sign an immediate document and no one's going to go hungry or homeless if they have to wait for a doctor to sign a note to get you started. We want you to name a person as your power of attorney, but we also want you to name a backup because remember, if you don't have capacity, you can't sign a power of attorney. So let's say in 2022, you make a power of attorney and you say, I name my best friend Bob as the power of attorney and you don't put a backup and then the following year, you have a stroke that is so bad that you are unable to act for yourself and Bob passed away. Now you have no power of attorney. But if in 2022, when you made that power of attorney, you put a backup. So my best friend Bob is my power of attorney and my cousin Sue is the backup. If you later had that stroke and couldn't execute a new document and Bob passed away, you'd have Sue there waiting in the wings to step in. Now, very often financial institutions will tell people that their power of attorney is not good because it's old, and that's just not true under the law. However, if you have an older power of attorney and you go into the bank and they tell you, oh, we can't take this because it's 10 years old, it's usually easier just to make a new one than fight with the bank. <clears throat> so if you've got an old power of attorney, the laws have changed in recent years on those probably a good idea to have it reviewed by a lawyer to make sure it has all the stuff in it that we'd like it to have um, now and so that that's less likely that it's usually a bank or an insurance company tells you, no, we're not going to take that. We do also recommend that you record your power of attorney in the county in which you own property. Um, the clerk's up their recording fees um, January of 2020. So it's no longer an inexpensive feat to record your power of attorney, but it's really good to do because if you don't record it and you subsequently lose the original, your power of attorney cannot act for you as to real estate. A copy is good in every other way. It's just real estate where the original or a recorded original works. Um, so I have clients that have properties in multiple counties and very often we'll record in every county that own property. Let's say you own property in Jefferson and Warren and you only record it in Warren and you don't have capacity to act for yourself, and you so you can't make a new power of attorney, and you can't find the original, you can get a certified copy from Warren and record it in Jefferson. Um, and that will work. So getting it recorded again, 
not cheap anymore like it used to be, but definitely a, an insurance policy worth having. Um, and remember, the power of attorney is typically for financial and legal matters. Sometimes we'll roll healthcare language into that power of attorney if the person, um, the principal, is choosing the same primary and backup to serve for financial, legal, and healthcare matters. Um, but if it's different people, obviously, we have to have a separate healthcare surrogate. And a healthcare surrogate is where you, is a legal document where you name a person to make medical decisions for you only if you cannot communicate. So, for instance, you have to have ABC surgery. You consented to that. The doctors take you back. They open you up and they say, oops, we actually need to do XYZ surgery. Um, and they didn't get consent for that. So they have to go and ask your healthcare surrogate because you are under anesthesia and they can't ask you. So they ask your healthcare surrogate, um, mom can't communicate, can we do XYZ surgery? Healthcare surrogate says yes. Once you come out of surgery, now you can communicate. They're not gonna ask your healthcare surrogate anymore. They're gonna address you because now you can communicate. Um, again, we want you to name one person and then a backup always good to have a backup so that you're not left without one. Not as big of an issue to not have a backup named on a healthcare surrogate as it is for a power of attorney. And here's why. Because we do have a state statute that says, if I do not have a healthcare surrogate named in writing, my next of kin can serve as my healthcare surrogate. The problem is this, if you have six kids and they can't make an agreed decision between the six of them, you don't want to rely on that statute for those six to come up with an, an answer of whether you can have XYZ surgery. You want to pick one person who you know can make medical decisions for you without emotion and without um, taking into consideration what they want and not what you want. Also, very important to have in the language of the healthcare surrogate is the HIPAA privacy language, because that's how your healthcare surrogate will look at your medical records and communicate with the doctors in order to make the decisions for you. So if you have an old healthcare surrogate that predates the HIPAA Privacy Act, you'll want to update that to include that language. And we'll also say that the state living will form has a, a section at the top where you can name a healthcare surrogate, but the state form does not have HIPAA language in it. Um, just an oversight by the legislature, I guess, but it's important. Um, all right, so the other document that we like to have while we're living and that affects us while we're alive is the living will. Every time you go to the doctor, every time you go to the hospital, they ask you, do you have a living will? Um, you don't have to have one. There's no law that says you have to have one. But if you have opinions about whether or not you want to be artificially maintained on machines or with nutrition and hydration, if you are otherwise permanently unconscious or uh, terminally ill and unable to communicate, then you definitely want a living will. Um, <clears throat> and that's a form created by the legislature, and that is available online, and you can fill that out. Um, or an attorney can make one for you. And finally, the last will and testament. 
And that's the document that most people think is the very most important thing. Um, and it is important because it deals with your asset distribution when you pass away. And in Kentucky, any assets that you own in your name only that do not have a co-owner or that are not in a trust and that do not have beneficiary or pay on death designees will pass per the terms of your will. And if you don't have a will, those assets will pass per the intestate laws of our state. So I have a case where husband and wife have been married 25 years for whatever reason, and I didn't ask. Every asset they owned was in husband's name. House, bank accounts, cars, everything they owned. She was not an owner on anything. He was a young man. He unexpectedly passed away. And under he had no will. And under those the laws of our state, his wife was entitled to only 50% of those assets. The other 50% went to their son. No big deal, except that he was on public benefits because he had special needs. And um, we need to make sure that we uh, get those set up for him in such a way that they're not gonna cause him to lose his benefits. Had the husband had a will, he would have said everything to my wife. And if he didn't say everything to my wife, he would have said this to my wife and this to my son, but my son's share goes to a special needs trust so he doesn't lose his benefits. So we're going to do our best to protect those assets, but, you know, it's not best case scenario to not have a will, unless you just don't care where your assets end up. And I have had those clients who say, Shelly, I just don't care. You know, um, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have grandkids. If it ends up with my long lost cousin, I just don't care. And if you just don't care, that's fine. Um, but let's say you pass away and you have three kids and no spouse and no will, your assets will go equal shares to those kids. No big deal. And that's probably what that, you know, people would want in that situation. But you can say whatever you want in your will. You can leave your assets to your best friend. You can leave your assets to charities. You can do percentages. You can do straight dollar amounts. You can do stuff. I leave the painting over the fireplace to my best friend, Sue. You can do whatever you want in your will. There's no rules about how you leave your assets. Um, we do have inheritance tax in Kentucky. We're one of five, I think, states that do. And um, anyone who is not a Class A beneficiary will pay inheritance tax. Class A beneficiaries are going to be your spouse, your parents, your siblings, your children, your grandchildren. Um, everyone else is going to pay some inheritance tax if you leave them assets. A will has to be um, properly executed in order to be submitted to court without issue um, of having to be um, proved before the court. So as long as your will has two independent witnesses, so no one who would ever inherit from you, a notary who notarizes those two witnesses, and a self-proving statement that you signed that says that you have capacity and are of age and all that good stuff, then there shouldn't be any questions about the validity of your will when you pass away. I've already talked about that. Okay, my next slide is about guardianship, and I use my slides to keep me on track. Um, guardianship is what happens when you don't have a power of attorney in place 
or you have a power of attorney that doesn't have all the powers in it that your that your power of attorney needs, um, or you need to move somewhere safe, physically move somewhere safe, safer than where you are, and you refuse to do that. Your someone may have to um, file for guardianship in order to move, take possession of you and move you. Guardianship is my least favorite thing in the world because it means that the person under guardianship has now lost all of their rights, and I don't want that to ever happen for someone, um, which is why it's so very important to get those powers of attorney in place and to make sure that as you age and if your health declines, that you pay attention to that. And um, if you need care, then address it. Don't just Sometimes people dig their heels in and say, I'm not going to make a power of attorney and I'm going to stay home and I don't care what anyone says. That's usually not in everyone's best interest, especially if they're in precarious health. I have a slide here on trust. I'm not going to go deep into trust because trust can be very confusing. But a lot of people have heard about maybe I should have a trust for this or a trust for that. Um, the most common types of trusts that we use as estate planning lawyers are revocable living trusts, irrevocable living trusts, and special needs trusts. Revocable living trusts are where I, let's say, I would put my assets in the trust. I would be trustee, so that means I manage them. I am the beneficiary, which means I'm the only one who can benefit from the assets. But when I pass away, any assets in the trust go straight to my uh, beneficiaries, not through probate. Um, so I would say, when I pass away, all of these assets go to these three people and they would just get them, no probate. There's also no asset preservation in that trust. So if I make an, a revocable trust and then I need a nursing home in five years, Medicaid still cares about that trust. I haven't protected anything. An irrevocable trust is what a lot of people come to see us for, and that's an asset protection trust. That's a trust that a lot of people use when they are concerned about having to go to skilled nursing care, and that's eight, nine, ten thousand a month, and they don't want to lose all their assets paying for care. So we can make these irrevocable trusts where you are not the trustee, but you choose your trustee. Most people choose their children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or relatives they trust. You are not the beneficiary and you cannot control the assets. The only purpose of this trust is to, after five years, anything in the trust, Medicaid will not count as your asset. This is a phenomenal tool for people who have farmland that has been in the family forever and ever and ever and they don't ever plan to sell it. And if people get sick and need skilled nursing care and this farmland, you know, dad needs care, the farm's in dad's name, dad is single, we're gonna have, Medicaid's gonna say, if you want us to pay for your care, you're gonna have to list that property for sale. Um, if you have put it in a trust at least five years before you made that Medicaid application, then Medicaid won't care about that land, no matter how much land it is. So that is just a phenomenal tool for, for land owners, especially the farmland that has been in families forever. And then a special needs trust. Um, 
This allows disabled individuals to inherit without losing their benefit. If you have a child who um, needs public benefit and receives public benefit, if they inherit from you outside of a trust, that could cause them to lose their public benefits, which for some people is hundreds of thousands of dollars in medical care a year. And so it, it is imperative that if you are the parent of someone who receives public benefits, that you look into a supplemental needs trust for them. Gone are the days where um, the child who was sick and needed care um, got disinherited because you don't have to do that. You can, it's still an option, but you don't have to do that because you can use a special needs trust. Okay, so that's the documents, that's the legal documents. Oh goodness, of course I talked too long. Um, I'm going to now push through to the um, to the Medicaid and VA benefits side of my talk. As you age and if your health declines, you're going to start hearing a lot of buzzwords about level of care. Level of care is exactly what it sounds like. How much care do you need? Do you need help with bathing, dressing? Do you need help with meal prep? Do you need help with medication? And there are... Um, essentially four levels of care, independent, which is where you live on your own, you do everything for yourself, assisted, which is essentially an apartment complex for older people who do everything for themselves, but they get housekeeping, meals, laundry, that kind of thing. Personal care, which is one step up from assisted living where the residents need some help with activities of daily living, bathing, dressing, toileting, transferring, continence care, or feeding. And um, and then oh, nursing homes. That's where you need at least two activities of daily living. And then we have nursing home costs, which I've already said is eight to ten thousand dollars per month, which is cost prohibitive for most of us. And the way that people pay for nursing home care is by um, private pay, long-term care insurance and uh, Medicaid. So people say, well, Shelly, I've got a house and I've got a bank account and this, that, and the other. I'm not gonna qualify for Medicaid. Well, probably not, except my job as an elder law attorney is to help you qualify for Medicaid, pay your share of care, but um, also save as much as we can. If someone has to go into rehab, and I don't know the age of our attendees here, but um, most of us have either been in rehab ourselves or know someone who has um, been in rehab. And if you're on Medicare, so um, Medicare will pay for the first 20 days in full. And for days, they'll give you up to 100 days, 21 through 100. Medicare will pay all but a copay of $194 a day. And most of the time, people have a supplement that will pay for that. Some of the Medicare Advantage plans cover some of those extra days, but not all. Um, so if someone in Kentucky becomes so sick that they need assistance with activities of daily living, they would qualify for a nursing home. So you have to, to qualify for a nursing home, you have to physically need a nursing home. And that means you need assistance with activities of daily living. Um, and then you also have to financially qualify. For a married couple, 
you get to keep your qualification requirements are um, much easier than a single person. A married couple between the two people, and I'm going to say before I start talking too deep into this, if you are married, it doesn't matter if your bank account is in your name and my bank account is in other names. Uh, as it's in my name, because we're married, it counts. So it doesn't matter if mom's assets are all in her name, dad's assets are all in his. The fact that they're married means it's all in a big bucket. Medicaid looks at it all. So um, if mom and dad, and I always say mom and dad, so forgive me, it's just I do it so often that that's what I say. Mom and dad um, have been married forever and ever and ever. And they own a house together, and they have joint bank accounts, and they have solo bank accounts, and they have insur life insurance, and they have, you know, an IRA. And uh, dad becomes so sick that he needs a nursing home. Well, mom is still healthy at home. And that means that their house is exempt, all right? Mom is still healthy at home, which means she can keep a big portion of their assets. Um, but the rest of their assets, Medicaid says, has to be spent down. So Medicaid says, um, Dad, you can't have more than $2,000. Your wife can't have more than $137,000 plus her house, plus her IRA, uh, plus her car. Um, and so you've got to spend all the rest of your money before we'll pay for your care. So an example would be for a married couple, let's say, that has um, $280,000 of assets that Medicaid counts. So bank accounts, CDs, cash value of life insurance, and let's say it's $280,000. Um, Medicaid would let the healthy spouse at home keep $137,400 of those dollars in whatever way that at home in our scenario, it's mom. And any way mom wants to keep it. So if mom has a uh, a life insurance worth twenty thousand and a CD worth a hundred thousand, and she wants to keep both of those things and a boat worth ten thousand, then that's fine. Um, and she can keep those hundred and thirty-seven thousand four hundred dollars in any way that she wants. And then the rest of the money has to be spent down before Medicaid will pay. Unless mom and dad come to an attorney like me, an elder law attorney, who can help them save that half. So Medicaid says, yes, you have to spend down. But Medicaid also says, here are all of the ways that you can spend that money to benefit yourself without having to spend it all paying for the nursing home. And if you spend your money in these ways, then we don't care that you've kept or that you have saved some of that money because you did it within the rules. So what we do for people is help them not lose everything they have if they become so sick that they need a nursing home. Um, it's no fun to live your life planning for what if one day I need to go to a nursing home? So those asset protection trusts I talk about aren't for everyone because some of us don't want to put our house and our 
bank account in a trust that we can't benefit from and that we can't control. But if ever we get sick, we do want the option to save some of our assets. Um, we just don't want the possibility of a nursing home to control our lives. So what are some things that people do in order to, um, well, mistakes people make leading up to as they age and their health declines? And these are things that people do that make sense because they're logical, but that Medicaid does not like. And if you do these things and then apply for Medicaid, you're going to get dinged for them. Um, and they're all things that you would have thought, what's the problem with that? And here there are the biggest mistakes. Um, obviously can't count because I said the four biggest mistakes and I listed five. But... Um, the most common that I see, the most common mistake is where mom needs care and she has her best friend, Sue, who is a retired nurse. So mom pays Sue $10 an hour to come over and take care of her, you know, five hours a day. And mom and Sue, mom pays Sue, Sue gets paid, all is good. Well, Medicaid says that those dollars that you paid to Sue are a gift unless you had a Medicaid compliant caregiver agreement in place with Sue. So if you private pay anyone who's not a professional with a company, so like a home instead or, you know, one of these care companies, you better get that Medicaid compliant caregiver agreement in place just in case you ever apply for Medicaid because that you will get penalized for giving that money away to Sue. And the penalty for giving money away is for about every $6,000 you give away, Medicaid won't pay for a month of care. So if you pay Sue for a good year, you can add those dollars up at $10 an hour, eight hours a day, and you're, you're pretty, spend a lot of money there. The other thing people do that is a mistake is they give away their house to their kids or sell it for less than fair market value. So Medicaid says if, if the PVA is uh, $100,000 and you sell your house to a complete stranger for $80,000, you have now given that complete stranger a $20,000 gift. If we take into account that $6,000 penalty, that's three months, a little over three months in the nursing home, Medicaid won't pay for you. And you had no idea that selling it for $20,000 less than PVA would ever cause you any harm. Um, and then adding kids to deed, adding friends to deeds, it is never a good idea to add people to your deed. Do not ever make your house vulnerable by adding a person to your deed. There are ways to protect houses and farms and lots and lake properties and everything that are much preferred to giving them away and adding people to deed. The IRS says you can give away $16,000 a year and that that you don't have to file a gift tax return if you do that. Medicaid says, we don't care what the IRS says. Don't you dare give away any money. If you do, we're going to penalize you. The other problem that we see very frequently is where mom moves in with daughter. Mom pays to add an in-law suite to the house that daughter owns. And then mom has to go to a nursing home in three years and applies for Medicaid. And they say, well, you put $50,000 into that house you didn't own. And so you can't do that. You gave away $50,000 and we're going to penalize you for it. 
So those are common things that people do that make sense because why, why would it be a problem? But Medicaid does not like it. I'm going to run through this example because I think it is so important because it happens so often. And this is an example of adding a person to a deed. And so I'm going to slow down my talking and go through this because this happens all the time and it messes people up all the time. So here's our example. Josephine is 75 and started thinking that she may not live forever. She wanted to make things easy for her daughter when she passes away. So she decided to add her daughter's name to her deed. Three years later, Josephine developed Alzheimer's and has to go to a nursing home. All she has in her name is her home. She has no bank account, no life insurance, none of the other things that causes Medicaid to say, hey, give us your money, which they don't really ever say, but for purposes of this, it makes it easy to say that. The house is worth $120,000. She applies for Medicaid and her application is denied and she's told she has to pay 10 months privately. Why was her application denied? It was denied because she gave, added her daughter on the deed. She gave away property before and then applied for Medicaid within five years of doing that. Not only is adding a child to your deed a problem because of Medicaid, but once you add a child to your deed, they are now an owner. That means that your real estate is subject to their life. They get in a car accident and accidentally kill somebody, your property is part of their asset. They file for divorce. They file for bankruptcy. They become a drug addict, a gambler. Any of those things make your real estate that you've put your kid on title vulnerable to them. And, you know, that's just not a good place to be when you might need the equity in your house to pay for care, um, when you need a roof over your head. So adding kids to deeds is one of the biggest issues that we find that really comes back to bite our clients. Um, the other thing is when you just give somebody property, they don't get a step up in basis. And when they sell it, they have to pay capital gains taxes. Um, whereas if they inherited it as a class A beneficiary, no capital gains tax. Um, the next benefit is the VA benefit, and I'm almost done. I'm going to kind of fly through this one because I want to give time for questions, and if there aren't questions, I'll come back to it slower. But if the VA has a benefit called aid and attendance, and this is a very specific benefit available only to wartime veterans, so a wartime veteran who served 90 days of active duty, so 90 consecutive active duty days, one of which was during a declared wartime period. And um, has an other than dishonorable discharge. So if you or your um, spouse, when they if you were still married to that person when they passed away, if they were a wartime veteran with at least 90 consecutive active duty days, one of which was during a declared wartime, then um, you could qualify for this benefit if you are um, needing assistance with activities of daily living, bathing, dressing, toileting, transferring. I can't tell you the number of widows of veterans that I have who are living in assisted living because they're able to afford it because this VA benefit 
is paying $1,300 a month towards their assisted living bill. Um, it's just a great benefit, but there's also income, I mean, asset requirements. So you can't have more than $138,000 plus a house, plus vehicles, you know, um, and still qualify for this benefit. There are ways that we can do some asset planning with trust to get you eligible sooner. Um, but this is just a great benefit available to um, wartime veterans and their widows. As long as you were married to the veteran when they passed away, you are considered a widow. Um, the wartime periods are not the same as what we learned in school. So um, I, uh, I always thought that World War II ended in 1945 because that's what they taught me. Um, but the Department of Veterans Affairs says that World War II actually ended on December 31st of 1946. So some people who think they aren't qualified because they didn't serve during a wartime are often pleasantly surprised to find that um, the wartime periods uh, date start much earlier than they thought and end much later than they thought. Again, there are financial requirements for both for that VA benefit, but um, the house doesn't count. We can do planning to get people eligible and it's just a great benefit available. This is uh, Rhonda Pinkus. I do have one question. Mm -hmm. I have a power of attorney and if I ever needed to update it in the future, what would I need to do? So you would just need to find, you know, a, a local attorney who makes a good power of attorney. Remember the words in the power of attorney actually matter um, and just change it. It cannot be, um, you can't, you cannot make an addendum or a codicil to a power of attorney like you can with a will. So you just have to execute a new one. Now, very often your power of attorney document will tell you how to notify your power of attorney that you have revoked the document. Um, if it does not specify how you are to notify the power of attorney, so if you have named your son um, and you revoke the document, you need to make sure that you give him in writing that the document has been revoked and he is no longer your power of attorney. Because if he is not made aware that the power of attorney has been revoked, and he continues acting on that power of attorney, he is not liable for anything because he was never notified it was revoked and he was acting in good faith that it was still in effect. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Hi, this is Lisa, I have a question. Yes, ma'am. You didn't mention representative payee or anything, but. My husband is representative payee for my mother's financial affairs. Mm -hmm. Could that have any kind of negative financial repercussions for us if she falls into any kind of debt or can't pay medical bills or what have you? For you personally, for you and your husband personally, the only time that can hurt you being someone's rep payee is if you um, steal from the principal or mismanage their funds. Um, 
he is of course responsible for making sure that her um, her social security gets into her bank account the way it's supposed to um, and uh, manages those payments for her. But no, he's not responsible for her bills personally or anything like that. The same is true for a power of attorney, I should say. Um, sometimes people are worried, oh, if I'm my mom's power of attorney um, and my mom doesn't pay a bill, are they gonna come after me because I'm her power of attorney? And the answer is no. Um, the only time that will happen, and this has happened with people before, is let's say that mom has to go to um, the hospital and you sign all the paperwork and your name is Jane Smith and you just sign all mom's paperwork, Jane Smith, and mom doesn't pay the bill, well, if any of that paperwork you signed said that you would guarantee payments and all you signed was Jane Smith, then that provider can come after you. But if you signed Jane Smith power of attorney or Jane Smith POA or Jane Smith attorney in fact, then you are not personally liable because you did not sign as Jane Smith. You signed as Jane Smith power of attorney. So that's very important if you ever ask for someone as a rep payee or as a power of attorney, um, that you make sure you include that designation when you sign things. So is there a acronym that you put on that, like for representative payee or just write the word, the full? A lot of times people just put R-E-P period P-A-Y-E-E. -E. But he's probably not gonna be making any, paying any bills. He's just making sure her money gets into her account properly. And I'm assuming POA would work just fine for power of attorney, right? So the acronym yes. way? Yeah, I think it's. Yep, just make sure that you do it because, you know, if they if they don't get paid and they can find a way to make someone else responsible, um, that's, that's a good way. This is Jim. Any, uh, yes. Um, I'm not sure this is entirely within the scope of, of your talk, but um, if, let's say you you are um, diagnosed uh, early, um, some kind of onset of dementia, Alzheimer's, that sort of thing, where you're at risk of winding up incapable, um, and you want to try to ensure that um, there's some kind of provision set that when you're no longer able to, when you're no longer responsible for your for decisions, you want to be placed in uh, an assisted living nursing care kind of a facility rather than then uh, remain under the care of spouse, um, et cetera. Is there a preferred uh, document that you would use for that? It, it doesn't sound like power of attorney would, would do it uh, because that would leave the decision up to that person. Um, and there, unless there's a way of writing in governance over how they can decide um, what to do with you or not to do with you. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess this, this kind of covers um, the, would this come under the, the end of life uh, kind of considerations? 
anyway. So probably not, because if you were wanting, if you, I want to make sure I understand the question. So you are at home, you have a spouse, and you become unable to care for yourself at a skilled level. So bathing, dressing, toileting, transferring, those things. Right. Is that what you mean? Right. Um, because sometimes people with dementia are very capable of those activities of daily living from a physical standpoint, but because their dementia is so advanced, they need um, a secured care, secured unit because just for their safety, because of elopement and getting lost and things like that. And so um, if you're talking about needing skilled care um, or even really assisted living, there's really no legal document that I know of that you could put in place that says, if ever I need this level of care, I demand that I be institutionalized rather than remain home. I don't think that exists. Um, I know, it, well, I don't think it exists from a, a legal standpoint. Could you just make an agreement with your spouse, a contract where you both say, this is what we're going to do if ever we become in this situation, you probably could. But typically, if people need skilled care, um, there comes a point where their partner is not able to take care of them, whether they want to or not. And the choice is actually taken from you and your partner because, you know, it's just not possible to provide the level of care. Would that be something that you might put in something like a living will? Um, just um, as a place of having it written and you know, legally notarized, et cetera. Well, it wouldn't go in a living will. A living will is end of life. So if you were at end of life, you wouldn't, it wouldn't matter um, really what you um what you were thinking about i mean you would not be strong enough to basically do anything but um you could possibly put it in a health care and i wonder if the most form has that let me look that up there's something called the most form which is not something i deal with as a lawyer but that it's a newer document for medical providers let me see if i have that and see if there's anything in the most form about living preferences. This is called the Medical Orders for Scope of Treatment form, and it is completed by healthcare providers. It doesn't say anything on here about preference for living situation. This is a document, though, if you um, are a sick person, and I know what, how do you define that? Um, but someone who is terminally ill or um, has a chronic illness or a progressive illness, um, your medical provider may bring this form up to you. It's worth at least noting since we kind of went down this road. It's called the most medical orders for scope of treatment. And whereas the living will only lets you make decisions about um, whether or not you're on uh, life support machines or feeding artificial nutrition and hydration, 
this document does allow you to get a little more um, um, specific as to some areas of care, not necessarily what you're at the end of your life, but as your disease progresses. Uh, could you give us your mm -hmm. contact information? So um, my name is Shelly Dowell, that's H-E-L-L-E-Y, last name Dowell, D-O-W-E-L-L. My email address is Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y, at K-Y-E-L-D-E-R-L-A-W.com. The phone is 502 581-1111, but if you decide you want to come in for a consultation and you know you have questions about special needs planning, um, I mean, I'm a good lawyer. I'm not going to tell you I'm not a good lawyer, but <laughs> I if I had to pick between me and Misty on who would do that planning, I would choose Misty um, because she just does more of it. I focus a little, on a little bit different of an area. So... Um, so if you would want to come in, you would just call that off, call the office, say you want a Bowling Green appointment with Misty, and they'll get you on the calendar. And again, there's no charge for the first appointment, and she's okay. wonderful. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind, or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598, or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Soundprints. Have a great week, everybody.